Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. I'm coming to you from the North Shore of Oahu, where weekly I interview some of the world's most inspiring people from business, philanthropy, and entertainment. I love collecting humans, and these are some of my favorites I've found along the way. This podcast is brought to us by Capita Financial Network. Do you need help with the next steps of your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call or schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. Today we have an incredible guest, Matt Davis on. Matt, thanks for joining us all the way from Ethiopia. Is that right? Is that where you are today? That is where I am this evening, yes. Oh, wow. It's this wonderful evening. to be That's here. Right. Thank you. <laughs> thanks so much for coming <laughs> on and so grateful to our mutual friend, Tim Shirk, who introduced us and to have you yep. get a chance to talk about your inspired work at Renew Capital and what you've been doing the last 17 years in the space of social impact investing. Um, it's such an inspiring story. Why don't we start off, Matt, will you give us a backdrop about what got you to Ethiopia today and, and what you're doing? Like, tell me, you start anywhere. You can start with your grandparents if you want. <laughs> oh, wow. That would, be, that would be a lot of fun. Well, my great, so yeah, we can start there. My grandfather. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. My my mom always thought that I was going to be the one that stayed close to home, and my sister was going to be the one that wandered off to foreign lands. And and the complete opposite happened, which um, which is is often how these things go. But yeah, interestingly enough, my grandfather was in um, the Second World War, uh, and he worked um, for what essentially became kind of the clandestine practices of the world. Yeah. Um, he was just a photographer, though. And so oh. I grew up around him and um, really just fell in love with his stories. You know, I don't I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough to when to be when, you know, your grandparents would pull out the slide projector and yes. flash through pictures. So, you know that. OK, so he met my grandmother over in Baghdad, Iraq. I ended up marrying. Oh, wow. Her. Uh, and he was essentially a spy, and he worked in the consulate there um, for the U.S. Um, Army, taking pictures wow. uh, of various operations happening there. He wasn't like the, the James Bond spy. He was more just a photographer, a really good one. But I would see pictures of him in kind of all of this, um, you know, dressed up in, in Russian outfits and Arab yes. outfits. And it was a it really probably stuck with me and got me going. So wow, it, it absolutely makes uh, perfect sense why I'm here. So that <laughs> but not is a doing great place what he to did, start. I, I will emphasize. <laughs> That's a great place to start with uh, <laughs> with the grandparents. Then, so you, how old were you when you got kind of this international bug? And if your if your mom thought you would always be the one that stayed home, what what transition do? <laughs> yeah, so I went to school in Utah, um, and and that was my first kind of exploration out of New England. I was born and raised in New Hampshire. Uh, and so, yeah, I got, um, my sister was actually in that, in that instance, she was the trailblazer. So she went West. Uh, I followed her, um, four years later and just absolutely loved it. 
uh, and then got a degree in the hard sciences and physics and then went and got a graduate degree in physics and business because I knew I never wanted to uh, work in, to, in a lab or do anything in, in, the, in the core research side of the, of the field. But I was just fascinated by the way the world worked. Uh, and that landed me a job in D.C. as a consultant. Mm. And I was working there for a few years. And um, I don't know if you remember this kind of movement of invisible children. It was just kind oh, of yeah. young, passionate men that, uh, yeah, you remember that. Okay, good. Um, anyhow, I was really moved by the video. I, you know, I was like, I'm not going to watch this. This is silly. But I, I remember putting it on and just was glued to it. Mm. And I ended up over in Uganda. Um and visiting a friend, not doing anything uh, other than a personal trip. But I happened to uh, go up into this northern region of the country and had a very interesting experience. I met with uh, a number of people there, went into these IDP camps uh, and, and was asking questions as a consultant normally is trained to do. Uh, about, you know, why are you here? What is, what's not working? And the recurring thing that I heard was, you know, we just want to leave and go back to work and go back to our farms and, and essentially be able to have the dignity to, to earn an income. And I was like, well, okay, what are we doing about that? And so I, I started to, you know, poke around and see what is happening over here. How is the U S playing a role in creating jobs? And, found out pretty quick that, you know, our focus really was very much on the humanitarian response work in Uganda. Uh, but when I was driving back down from northern Uganda, I, um, I just was struck by uh, the obs observation that there were these massive, amazing plantations where it looked like thousands of people were working. And I'm like, well, there's business happening here. And I remember talking with my driver and I'm like, what's going on? Are, are Americans investing here? And he was like, what? No, <laughs> no, not at all. You know? And so I just started asking these questions and one thing led to another. I ended up having uh, amazing meetings with, you know, I ended up meeting the president of Uganda uh, and just found myself kind of very perplexed by the idea that in the West, in our country, you know, the heartbeat of capitalism and entrepreneurship, the thing that we believed so much in uh, was not really our strategy of engaging the continent of Africa, where that is essentially what they wanted so badly. Uh, and mm. really just had this idea in my head that maybe I could do something with that. Wow, Matt, what a story. I'm mm. very familiar with Invisible Children, Bobby Bailey and Jason Russell, friends of mine, the founders. And I've worked with them over the years in the space of social impact. They're totally talented. That's really neat origin nice. story that got you over there. Are you, um, so, I mean, what you said is so, such an important kind of thing I'd love to explore is just like, why I've thought this a lot because I spent 20 years in mm -hmm. philanthropy and, you know, I notice a lot of these brilliant private se sector thinkers, these entrepreneurs, these very talented capitalistic thinkers, you know, have great strategies for scalability and sustainability and solution. When it comes to like doing good, they like suddenly throw off that thinking cap and they like suddenly have this everything's from uh -huh. the heart kind of kind of process. 
And, and I've seen this happen a lot where I'm like, why would you not bring those same skill set to the table, you know, where we can marry these two? Uh, you can have your head exactly. and your heart and your wallet all all impacted um, in a positive way. And um, I actually would love to ask you, so as you got started, this was 17 years ago, is that right? That you got, that you decided yep. to go into social impact investing. I mean, that was kind of a new term then. I mean, that was like the frontier. You were like in the wild west of the space. It's still a, a, a young, immature sector, I think, and people defining what right. that is. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be a pioneer in the space of taking for-profit capital into developed countries and with a purview to help people in um, in a quote-unquote impact manner? I'd love to hear what that was like. Yeah, and I would probably say now, you know, after doing this for many years, I would I'm moving away from probably even that term. I think, yeah. uh, and moving more just into investing, uh, and and I have a good reason for that. Now, I think on um, well, first let's let's begin with what it was like to be a pioneer. Yes, I actually had no idea uh, what the heck we were doing when we first started this company, um, and I agree with you. I was actually quite shocked that. Um, you know, a lot of the people that give quite a bit of money to Africa and the best intentions um, forget the, the origins of how they made that capital. And I think that is simply just a, um, in some ways, it's, it's a matter of just making that offering available to them. I, I tell you what, we have a, a, a network, an angel network of over 200 of probably some of the bravest, smartest, entrepreneurial executive type people yeah. and their journey begins with us saying just think different for a moment put on your opportunity goggles and when you come over on a plane think that you're jp morgan walking down the streets of new york at the turn of the century yeah. um look at this place not as a place full of problems that you have to give money to but a land of opportunity waiting to be invested in, built in, you know, bringing that entrepreneurial spirit to this continent. It is so alive here. And I'll tell you what, it works every time they leave those trips going. I now I cannot believe that I have not seen that. And it's it's just a, a request mm. to ask them to look at things slightly different. And I tell you, every single time, every single person that comes on a trip leaves going this is going to be the next growth market. So I think it's more just, wow, nobody's ever asked them, invited them into that narrative that they could be a part of this next great emergence of what likely will be in the 21st century, uh, the, the largest growth market in the world. Uh, and a lot of people just don't even think of it that way, but mark my words, top five stories, I think it will be. Um, so that I think is a very interesting piece to the impact narrative of it. Uh, right now there is, you know, when we first started, I'll, I remember coming back from Uganda right before Christmas. Um, I had had a call with somebody, a, a gentleman named Anthony Bugbevine, who worked at uh, the Rockefeller Foundation. And a lot of him, a lot of people say that he was kind of the, the founding father of impact investing. And he started this organization called the Global Impact Investing Investing Network, or GIM. Yeah. Uh, and he he said, would you come up and see me? So I landed in uh, Newark. Um, it was snowing. I, I remember 
I was, you know, essentially bootstrapping Renew at that point. We were still trying to figure out what we were doing. I went up to the late night. I ended up getting up there like seven or eight o'clock at night. He was the only guy there. We were sitting in this gorgeous office looking out over Manhattan at night. Snow was coming down. It was like the most perfect scene. And he said, you're impact investing. And I said, I'm what? He says, you're impact investing. I said, (laughs) I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but this is what I'm seeing happening on the ground over there. And he was like, yes, this is a, it was a, it was an interesting narrative. And the idea behind what he was saying was amazing that we could create this third bucket where we take either a haircut or we find a way to bring down what normally would be on a risk adjusted basis, a hurdle rate that most people would never assume because it's so high that they wouldn't invest in this part of the world. But if we could drop that down a little bit and say, hey, instead of a 90% hurdle rate, we can bring that down to a 25%. Maybe would you invest that capital versus just give it away? Yeah. And that really seemed to work. So I loved that. And I think it did work very well initially. I won't get into why I now am moving away from it, but uh, I think for now, I think the idea of it was beautiful. Oh, I want to hear the why you're moving out uh, away from it. That's, I think it's important. Actually, now I guarantee my listeners will want to hear that too. And you know, I've had this debate with people because, you know, um, mm-hmm. you really just want people to think like investors, like, is this going to see traditional returns? Yes or no, you know, and marrying that, you know, um, you know, this is a conversation where people are like, well, you know, social impact doesn't do a lot of impact and it doesn't do a lot of is what I've heard. This is the criticism. It doesn't do a lot of impact, but it also doesn't do a lot of um, uh in returns mm-hmm. so it's kind of like n- doing neither that well is the view and i'm like i don't know that that's true i think it it depends on your paradigm mm-hmm. and like how you approach it and but i'd love your thoughts because i definitely think it's like you know hey just look yeah. at it like an investor and then let the byproduct of all the good be mm-hmm. obviously inherent and like it's why you would rather you know choose to play this sport than that sport but to just have the same acumen that you do and um, the traditional markets. I mean, th- th- that's a pretty um, fair conversation to have, but I we'd love to hear it if you don't mind. Yeah, no, I, and and I would say, I, I think I'm a I'm a probably a unique case in this because of the the location of where I'm investing. I mm. think from how we market this to people, I think yes, you have to think of the impact that you're creating. Uh, and my request right. to them from an impact perspective is just, you know, again, on a risk adjusted basis, just bring that down a few basis points. And sometimes I'm asking like 10 or 20 basis points, because when you actually factor in currency risk and country instability and, you know, stage of growth risk and, and control risk, you, it really piles up very fast. Yeah. Um, wow. So if we can kind of eliminate some of those, then yes, it is impact. It's really over here where I'm worried about, where I, I've run into the biggest challenges. Mm. Uh, and I see it happening a little bit um, where, you know, there's a lot of, you know, impact funds. There's a lot of, uh, and again, these are amazing people, very well-intentioned. Um, and and I love that it's creating more awareness and bringing over capital, frankly. I think that that is all very good positives. But in the and the negative side of it, when I'm hearing entrepreneurs pitch to me and they say, well, we're a social enterprise or, you know, we, you know, we love the impact side of what Renew is all about. And we're creating jobs and employing women. 
and you know reducing carbon and and I'm like wait stop stop I need to know are you an actual business like yeah. are you going to scale yeah because uh without that you know it, it really becomes an NGO it becomes a charity and so it's a very slippery slope and what I found over here is that uh so long as you put a really great ethical entrepreneur at the top of an organization in a country like this, uh, in Ethiopia, in a region like this in Africa, where, I mean, the figure is ridiculous of the jobs gap. I mean, the, the, the lack of employment opportunity for the youngest and fastest growing population in the world. Uh, it's staggering. We have to create enterprises, but we have to create enterprises that are scaling. And so long as it's not pillaging the environment, doing harm to communities and doing harm to employees, which, to be honest, again, if you have a good ethical person at the top of that organization, you're, you're going to be fine. It's the employment that we have to create. And you need companies that scale. They have to be profitable. They have to be run well. So it's the business fundamentals, I think, that get washed away too much by kind of a little bit of these, you know, idealistic investors that are coming over looking for a company that's doing this SDG and this SDG, you know, it's just like that, that you can find it, but it's, it's going to be really hard to find a company that does that and actually scales to the point where it's going to attract more capital and really grow. And I, I find that that's, that's a disservice to um, right now, the private sector over here. Wow. Fascinating. I totally can track everything you're saying. That's really good points are so I mean, tell me a little bit about living in Ethiopia, living in Africa. You said you came by way of Afghanistan. You told me that earlier before we started the interview. Um, <laughs> tell me how long have you been, yeah, re remote and expat working in the field and what made you realize you had to be on the ground and how is that with the family and life and, you know, the quality of life and love to hear a little bit about mm -hmm. that. Well, I will start by saying the only way I could have pulled this off is to have an amazingly supportive wife uh, that um, has been my business partner uh, and life partner from really at the beginning of this journey. And that has been amazing. A lot of people say, like, oh, my gosh, it must be horrible working with your spouse and this and that. I mean, it is awesome. Of course, we butt heads every once in a while, and sometimes it's not beautiful. Um, but it's such an amazing journey. Uh, and it, it really provides a ton of longevity. I mean, when you both are on a mission uh, to really do something transformative, which is our mission, right, is to really change the entire paradigm of the way the world, especially the Western world, engages Africa from giving to investing. That model is what we've been executing for the past hundred years. It's ripe for disruption. It's done a phenomenal job, but it's time to move on. Uh, this country and this continent uh, want to move to becoming, you know, like an emerging uh, market. They want to be respected. They want to attract capital. Uh, and so when you have a powerful mission, you you really love what you do. I get to you know, meet with entrepreneurs that are doing just phenomenal things every single day. I get to talk with investors that suddenly see just tons of opportunity here. It's really and then you get to work with your wife who loves doing that as well. It's just a phenomenal experience. So um, Laura and I were both in Afghanistan. You know, we're working on a project 
um, with some really innovative people in the Department of Defense trying to do a project like what we're doing here, um, but in a small town in Western Afghanistan called Herat, where they were trying to spark that entrepreneurial spirit in that city. Um, long story short, it was a very challenging environment and we had always built and designed renewed capital to work in Africa. Uh, so when that project concluded, we went all over the continent and we had already done a lot of homework, started you know, building the idea of what the heck we were gonna do uh, in, in a dusty back road in Senegal, in the back of a beat up taxi inhaling way too much gasoline fumes, um, we looked at each other and said, Ethiopia. Uh, and so we moved here in 2012 uh, and it's been an absolute wild ride ever since. Uh, I wouldn't trade any decision that I've made uh, since. Uh, obviously had some challenges. Uh, we've been through a civil war, which has been uh, been a very unique experience. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's been an absolute adventure. I've loved every minute of it. Oh, Matt, that's so amazing. Um, having lived abroad, and I, I, I moved to Russia as a little girl in 1991, right after the fall of communism. You know, it was a precarious okay. time to be there. We had to have bodyguards. Like there was just this whole, my dad was an international yeah, consultant right. and broker. And like, and then I've lived, I've spent, you know, um, sometimes a month or two, you know, at a time in developed countries with my children, my small children in some instances and traveling like kind of like a yeah. gypsy style nomadic, you know, professional that we can do today, digital nomads. <laughs> and um, sure. yeah, security for your family is a thing. And it's funny because I, I just want to share that like, there's kind of a giant misnomer. I think the public doesn't realize. I mean, like places like in, you know, mm -hmm. LA, Chicago, New York have more crime per capita than places in a lot of the developed world that, that we have, I don't know, have international, like we have, you know, warnings on traveling there. And, you know, um, it's interesting that I think there's, you know, you wouldn't go on skid row at 11 o'clock at night either by yourself as like a single, you know, woman or whatever you, you know what I mean? There's, there's places in uh -huh. the United States that are, that have, have precarious, uh, problems. Um, and there is like, there is some real genuine, um, you know, issues to consider mm -hmm. medical care and proximity as a, as a non-citizen to, our own government's, you know, assistance or whatever. But I'd love your thoughts about that and how you've navigated that because there might be listeners who, as they travel or they think about investing, have bought into some of the propaganda of just like how demonized, you know, some of this world is and when it's really not quite the case and experience. Definitely. Love your thoughts on that. Oh, no, absolutely. I think, yeah, the the media really does a disservice, um, unfortunately. They do a great service as well, but they also... Um, you know, a news cycle, the, you see the clips, you see the reels. And, you know, I remember once, um, I had a friend in, uh, Jerusalem and I'm like, are you okay? Like you're getting bombed. Like there's a, there's a war going on. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm sitting at a cafe. Everything's fine. But you know, what you see and what's happening on the ground are very different. I, and that was the case. I mean, we were here, uh, during the conflict and Addis was fine. Addis was very peaceful. Um, and, and most of the country was continuing to operate. The, the conflict was horrible. Uh, and of course, there were many lives lost. But I do think that, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, people's misconception of reality. And so actually that is, from an investor perspective, that is the opportunity right now with Africa. 
so much of the world still thinks the risk is here. Um, whereas in fact, the reality of the risk is, is actually down here. Uh, and, um, partly that is the opportunity that we're pursuing, right? We, we want to, you want to get in to a region and right now it's, this is the biggest, you know, discounted region in the world. Uh, and so when you're looking at opportunities, if you're walking into, um, you know, parts of, you know, Salt Lake city, parts of. Uh, Manhattan, parts of Washington, D.C. 20, 30 years ago, um, the people that were buying in the regions that are now fully developed are the ones that reaped all the rewards. Uh, and it's a similar scenario right now here. The problem is, is that uh, it's the West, which really has the greatest potential to really do a ton of good through entrepreneurship, uh, is totally missing that mark with the way that we engage here. Uh, Ironically, China is the one that is leading uh, in private sector engagement on the continent of Africa. And so they are the ones that are moving much more aggressively and much faster. Uh, and as a result, they're really getting into those parts of the city uh, and buying up all that real estate. Uh, and, and most of the West is totally, oh, I would never go to that side of town. Unfortunately, they're the ones going, dang it, I missed that opportunity. And I'm, I'm really concerned that we are missing uh, such a huge opportunity, not only to do a ton of good, but really to help influence in the right way capitalism to do what it does best when it's not being skewed and manipulated uh, in the wrong directions. And so that's also part of what we're trying to do is really bring in the right you know, governance systems into the companies we invest in, really helping them do business the proper way. Uh, and I, I just wish we were doing more of that. That's really insightful matt and um and helpful for people to realize the opportunity is also commiserate with some of those other metrics that you're that you're talking about um tell us a little bit more about renew capital like the size of it the, the scope how many you know investors and lps and gps you have like just kind of give us the left right limits of your business how many projects you've invested in over the years. I mean, that's a long time to be in this space. Like, like I said, as a pioneer, I think, you know, early on being one of the first, I mean, I mean, uh, how are you in terms of size and scope compared to some of the competitors? And yeah, would love, we have a lot of investors that listen to our podcast and maybe, you know, they'd be interested in learning about sure. your purview. Sure. So we, um, started really small and really slow. <laughs> Um, we had no clue what we were doing. Um, so, you know, we're, you're, you're classic, you know, Americans coming over wide eyed and full of opportunity and, um, needed to get beat down a bit. Uh, so now, you know, I would definitely say we're, we're a lot more battle hardened. Um, you know, we expected that we were going to get, you know, fleeced. We were going to, you know, have businesses fail. We were going to have, yeah. you know, you know government officials, you know, asked for bribes, et cetera, et cetera. We've learned all those things the hard way. So the nice part about um, the first 10 years of Renew um, was that we essentially said, we're going to really, we're committing ourselves to doing this for the rest of our lives. This isn't something that just kind of becomes a, a line on your resume. When you come over to do this, you're going to have to invest um, a really good chunk of time to get up that learning curve. Uh, so Laura and I knew that when we when we moved over here and we said, okay, let's let's go slow, but but like any smart entrepreneur, you know, our vision's big. We want to build 
the largest and most successful investment firm in Africa. You don't do that by just <laughs> doing a few deals here and there. Oh. Um, and But you also don't do that in 10 years. You do that in 100 years. Oh, so wow. we, we knew that this thing is going to have to be something that we build with a very long-term vision. Uh, so, you know, when you when you extend the timeline of it, uh, then things become a lot easier to cope with. That roadblock, losing that company, you know, facing a civil war, watching almost all of your portfolio evaporate uh, overnight. Okay, we've been through that. <laughs> we saw how that is. Let's get on with the next 10 years. And so um, we did for the, we, we had some amazing investments and some really phenomenal entrepreneurs. We kind of started out with almost like a Berkshire type of um, model of portfolio mm. construction. So my philosophy on this was, well, let's get over there. Uh, let's get over here and start investing in, you know, your classic small midsize enterprises. Uh, so we did textiles, we did uh, coffee, we did an ambulance company, we did bread company. Um, we did a juice company. You know, we, we were trying to uh, get into the FMCG space. So it was really kind of cash flow businesses, you know, building them up, uh, really kicking off and generating a lot of cash that we could then invest and invest in more. However, we needed capital and no fund uh, or no kind of GP LP model uh, was going to work for us because the deal size that we were going it's kind of small. It's like a wow. half a million dollars. These were small tickets. Yeah. Uh, and we weren't going to go out and raise, you know, a $50 million fund because we knew that that was going to push us into larger deals. And our mission was to come in and really master that small mid-sized space. Well, um, through that, we learned, well, you know, doing that kind of micro private equity, it's tricky over here. You really do need solid operators. You need people that are really experienced. And then when the company starts to click and starts to grow, you need uh, some capital, some fast follow-on capital to help that company go to the next level. Those elements are not here right now. We had angel investors. We had this growing network, what I would call a network of compassionate capitalists, smart people. Um, but they don't like to do multiple rounds into companies. So we were like, eh, okay, that model didn't quite work. Simultaneously, we started to see a lot more innovation coming out of the tech and tech-enabled space. And we were looking like 10 years ago, people were coming and pitching us deals. are like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Two, three years ago, we started to hear like, wow, this is actually a lot more mature businesses. Like these business models are coming in a lot more thought through. You were starting to see diaspora come back. And we said, okay, now it's time to really start to rethink this. And so when we when in the beginning of 2022 is when we said, okay, now it's time to hit the gas pedal. We've learned, we re-engineered our investment thesis. We came up with new criteria. We partner with amazing um, governments. So we partner with the US and Canadian government. They essentially cover the way our business model works is they cover our, the equivalent of a management fee of a fund, our operating expenses on the ground, because we're going into like the, the trickiest countries and really kicking off that entrepreneurial ecosystem in those countries, and then doing that first angel round, then a quick growth round into those companies. And there's not a lot of investors that are playing in that space. And so we say to them, hey, let's, let us build the pipeline for these larger venture and private equity funds that are really starting to come in the region. Let's, we have to create that pipeline. 
And will you please cover those costs? Because nobody that's a sunk cost somebody's got to pay for. Um, and so now we did about um, 13, 14 investments up to 2022. Now our target is to do 20 investments in 2023. So we're scaling fast. We went from one country in 10 years to now we're in eight countries. Uh, we've got a staff of about 50 spread across the region. Uh, and we're looking at anywhere between 100 to 200 companies a month. Uh, and putting those deals, we, obviously we take them through a very rigorous uh, screening and vetting process. Uh, but we put those out to our angel network and we organize those into uh, kind of micro funds uh, that our investors can put money into. Uh, and then obviously we're going to lose some in that, but a few of them uh, will emerge and then we put another growth round of capital into those deals, ideally getting them up to a really nice size. Incredible. I mean, so how many, you're looking at 100 and 150 a, a month, how many do you actually invest in or pick into your portfolio? What's the size? Yeah, our target is around like two and a half percent, three percent of of the the top of the funnel. And honestly, that is probably too too aggressive. We probably need to expand that out to about five percent because there's so much right now that is still unknown. Like to size up, I always say this, like to do what we're doing um in, you know. Utah or California or New York or, or anywhere really uh, more developed or even in, in Asia, parts of Asia, you know, you've got a lot of, of different pipeline coming at you. You've got fairly educated entrepreneurs. They're using business models that they're adapting and tweaking. There's not a ton of innovation, especially in the more emerging markets. There's some, but a lot of it is copy paste models that are, are being adapted for the cultures of those environments. Um, but then, so then it's really about execution, right? Then you say, can we get capital? Can we get operators to execute this business model? Can we move fast and capture that market? And I think that is too what's here. But what's missing is you really need to build the feedstock of operators. So we essentially run the equivalent of an executive MBA for the companies that we invest in, teaching them how do you do an OKR system? You know, how do you do a 13 week cash flow? Like, really. How do you write a position agreement, set up your org structure, like hire, fire quick. Uh, and it's and that's really fun. I mean, our, our investors also love it. They come in and do mentorships with uh, the entrepreneurs. We love when they come and do guest lectures because a lot of them have experience doing this stuff. So uh, it's an entire experience that we wrap around that entrepreneur. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's a really phenomenal type of way that we get these companies moving. Uh, forward. So it's um, it's a good experience. That's incredible, Matt. Those entrepreneurs must be so stoked to have you as their mentor and have this strategic relationship with you, not just your capital, but your your heart, your your grit, your moxie, like all that and your know-how um, and that network. That's just invaluable um, and can be life-changing to any entrepreneur because it's all about the who, really, right? That's something that um, Tim and I Absolutely. both share the same mentor, Joe Ritchie. I talk about almost every episode. Somehow he makes his way in every episode. But, you know, that was his main thing is like <laughs> you find high capacity and high character. When you meet, when you meet those together, they're unicorns, exactly. you know, they're the ones you look for. And yeah. And so for, to have you on as an investor side that has both of those ends of the coin is just pretty phenomenal to you. What what's the size of your fund? Like you're you're doing a new fund right now and. What, how, how big are, is the assets under management there? 
Well, we actually don't have a fund. Oh. Uh, we okay. do. We have an angel network, and so if we syndicate out um, packages of of deals to them okay. uh, on a fairly regular basis. Okay, you uh, did so explain it's, that. It's, it's okay. evergreen. Okay. Yeah, it's evergreen. Yeah. So no, no, that's okay. And I, I love that model because, uh, again, I, I don't know something about funds, uh, in the space and the size of what we're working on. I haven't seen um, perform so well here. I don't. I don't fully know why, but it's like the, in this small, mid-sized space. Um, it's a, it's a big challenge, and just the timelines too. Like the the uncertainty of the markets. Like let's just say currency, for example. So if I were to have a ten plus two, you know, two twenty fund model in Ethiopia. Let's just park the the issue of the civil unrest that happened that we're emerging out of now. And we're already forecasted to be at 70% GDP growth in 2023. I mean, talk about resilience, but we'll we'll get wow. there in a second. Um, but just when when you think of let's let's talk about currency. Um, when you when you have a government that's controlling a currency, you fairly can predict what the exchange rate's gonna be. You're about to start liquidating your assets and exiting and winding down the fund. Um, you're getting people to buy, but you're getting it in Burr. Uh, but now you run into some challenges. Now we have to get that Burr converted into dollar. So we're in queue. We're waiting for us to exit. You know, we have to move three million in Burr uh, equivalent into dollar out of the country. That's going to take about you know four months maybe to get that. Uh, access to that USD in that period, for example, um, the the national government, uh, the government, the national bank might say, "We're going to devalue the currency thirty percent." Boom! You've just lost thirty percent of your investment. Uh, waiting for that, so I'm I'm using that as an example. That's just real currency risk, but. When you have a set timeline of when you have to get your G or your LPs back, your capital, um, you don't know what that what's going to be happening in that country or those countries at the time you're, you're winding that down. That to say, I completely understand that people want their money back. I just think that there's better vehicles for that. So we're a permanent capital vehicle and Renew itself raises capital to invest off of our own balance sheet. And and I do. I'm a big fan of, of Berkshire Hathaway. I'm, I'm a like I I devour the annual letters every year, and I love them. And I, I just love the philosophy of shareholder alignment. And I think that that's so critical. So when you have also a separately managed vehicle, uh, I I just find it interesting that I'm never sure uh, in the parts of the world where we work where there's so much soft capital that's going to support the GP. Are the shareholders in the GPs really aligned? Um, with the LPs. I, I don't know. And I like to have that alignment. Uh, so we, we don't use a fund. We, we use our company as the second round larger investor and our angels, which Laura and I invest in every single deal uh, that our angels invest in um, as our two vehicles, our two funding platforms. That is so stunning. <laughs> what a cool model and how, how exciting. And what, so tell us, Matt, like, on this journey that you've, yeah, you've been really, um, I mean, you would have had a lot of uh, obstacles, um, a lot of difficulties to overcome, as you mentioned, the first 10 years. But like overall, like 
are you more jaded about human nature? Are you more inspired? Like you talked about the resilience of the country. You talked about, you know, these um, open-minded mm-hmm. angel investors and this incredible network of people that really get it. I mean, what's your what's your kind of your aperture towards mankind and where we're headed and like what potential there is, you know? Do you feel more like cynical? Mm-hmm. I'm like, man, this is a slog, but I'm going to try fighting anyway. Or do you, or you find yourself inspired? Where, where are you on the spectrum of that? Oh, no, I love the underdog. I, I think the, I don't know, I, I think, um, you know, I I was a kid that came from, you know, a very you know, non-privileged environment. And I was kind of a nobody, you know, until some one day uh, somebody took notice of me and said, hey, you know, come try out for the football team. You know, I, that one moment of my life. Uh, and you know, it, it literally catapulted me into a very different track that, and, and just having somebody walk up alongside you and say, Hey, I think you've got potential. Um, there are, you know, this is going to be the largest region population wise in the world, uh, by 2050, one in four people in the world will be from Africa and, they are in so need of somebody walking up next to them saying, Hey, I think you, you've got some potential. Like let's should, could we do something with this? Um, you know, you hear these entrepreneurs pitch and they have been just at it for ever. I mean, talk about scrappy street smarts. They uh, might not, not know how to read a PL, but <laughs> they can tell you how to make sure not to get pickpocketed through Mercado. I mean, that's for sure. I mean, these, they, they know what they're doing, right? In the in the raw sense. Um, mm. And yeah, I, I tell anybody that's jaded about the world right now, come over and spend a month with us. Uh, you will go back feeling more hopeful, more energized, and you'll appreciate, like, I love America. I am like, I, you know, when I'm here, I just dream about, about my home. I miss it oh. deeply. Um, and when I land on the tarmac, it's all us. Like I, I get out and I literally like love that pavement. I love going for jogs and on the sidewalk and not worrying about tripping in, in a uncovered like pit. Um, but I, I wouldn't feel that right after about two or three weeks, Lindsay, you know what I want to do? My, I'm, I'm like, I need to get back. You know, it's like, you just feel that draw back to the adventure. And you come back over here and it's raw, it's real, it's messy. You know, you're falling and tripping into uncovered holes on the sidewalk. I mean, you're constantly having to have to take my daughter on, like, make sure that when we're walking down the sidewalk, she's, you know, like not getting, you know, run over by some some cattle or something like that. I mean, these things happen. But um, gosh, it's an adventure. And and it is. I'm extremely hopeful for mankind. I think it's great. I love what's happening with technology. I think this continent is going to entirely shock the world um, and leapfrog. And so many industries are going to uh, just adopt all of the amazing technology that is being generated around the world that a lot of us are afraid of. These guys are over here using it to suddenly like make it that one doctor who is trying to take care of thousands of patients now can actually use AI to potentially diagnose them much faster save a lot more lives a lot wow. quicker like think of the business opportunity yeah there. i mean the impacts are going to be huge 
Uh, so no, I'm I'm extremely excited, and I think yeah, just come over here for a while and and see this is this is the most opportunistic, hopeful part of the world oh. uh, that you'll ever be in, and it really is inspira- inspirational. I think. Wow, Matt, that was incredible. That needs to be printed on a T-shirt or something. I feel like the world needs to understand that because <laughs> again, we talked about media and how it depicts things, um, and can be really. Mm-hmm disingenuine or even just one-sided or you know the narratives are really have a spin to them and i found that that to be the case like i find africa to be incredibly inspiring rich with culture and entrepreneurial spirit and resilience and beauty and yes there are problems yes there's stuff but i i feel like when i get plopped in that continent and i know it's an entire continent and the countries are you know very massively but you know as a as a general sweeping like um, you know, brand identity, people in the West often consider Africa like this, you know, this situation that needs, you know, us to be the saviors of. And it's like, actually, right. you know, they have a lot to save us from. I mean, not just, I mean, you even talked about the, 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 um, the ethics, the, the, the desperation and the resilience of the people there. It actually like the darkness that they have to fight against brings the most light you've ever seen i mean some of these people's character because yep. of what they've had to push through to understand their identity and understand who they are and what they stand for and those values becomes fortified and steel you know what i mean and so i just love what you have to say you know i think that there is more of a cooperative i found this generally to be true but those who are honest and ethical and making it work they try to make it work for everybody they understand communal benefit and virtuous cycles really well because it's the difference mm-hmm. between life and death in their lived experience right like if, if i don't take care of my neighbor who's going to take care of me when when my crop gets destroyed by global warming next year you know and there's such a long-term accounting on relationship and and such a humility of their um precariousness they're you know they're there's this beautiful juxtaposition juxtaposition I found of like kind of their nothingness and the mm-hmm. realization that they're at play against so many forces and their humility, but then also this amazing belief in the in the individual and how they can still overcome. And they believe in that story. The underdog story is real. So I love what you're saying, Matt. Any <laughs> any last words you want to share as you leave a message to our listeners about your work, your life, you know, Africa, the investment world, anything that you want to share, we'd love to hear your kind of your final thoughts about, you know, what makes Matt get up every day and pursue that, the bumpy pavement and the the adventure like you do. <laughs> I would just say that, um, think different about Africa. Um, you know, we have been, we're, we're about 20 or 30 years behind and our brains haven't quite caught up with what is happening on the ground right now, but come over and see it. And on this trip, when you come, just when you sit down on the plane, just say, I'm going to go over and look for opportunity. Uh, That is my biggest request. Um, You will find it the minute you walk off that plane. Uh, And it's, it's everywhere and it's alive and it's so exciting. And the people on the ground love to hear that you see it as well. Um, coming over to do good and to give money away um, is noble and beautiful, but to invest it is brave, bold, and so onerous. And I think that if we could do just a little bit more of that uh, and really bring our full game 
I mean, I would love to see, you know, thousands of uh, entrepreneurs, you know, you might've sold your businesses, you made a lot of money, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do now, come over and bring your game here. Uh, they would love to hear your story. They would love to just sit down uh, and you share what your journey was like. Uh, and if you're so moved, you know, set up a phone call with one of them and, you know, coach them for a few weeks. That would be amazing. Um, and then, you know, see where the journey goes from there. That's all. It's amazing, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on our show and for your incredible contribution to that part of the world, but also to those of us in the West to have this opportunity to get behind so much um, expansive horizon, you know, an expansive horizon, so to speak, and to be a part of solutions that we really do at the end of the day, we live on a pretty small planet. It, it's it's stunning, actually, how the macroeconomics and the and the macro ecosystem and, you know, cause and effect is very real. And if anything taught us that living through yeah. a pandemic, right, made us realize just actually how we're one giant family, to use a cheesy phrase. But That's right. the reality is, what we do today matters and micro decisions and micro behaviors permeate, you know, mm -hmm. um, our planet and, 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 and really what we want to get in is in a, a, a posture of truth and understanding our part in the world that we're truly global citizens. And so I appreciate, uh, Matt, your, your time and what you do. And thanks so much for coming on our show. Thanks, Lindsay. You're doing a great job. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Take care. Do you need help with the next steps for your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call to schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at www.capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube.